Good morning, everyone. It's great. Why don't we just give uh, Rachel and Stephen a round of applause? Can we do that? Just welcome them here. <clears throat> There's already some wonderful, as you know, compassion things of which many of you are involved in in our church family, and we really appreciate all the volunteer hours, all the all the stuff that's been given, all the way that people are pouring themselves out, and uh, um, we just feel like this is uh, a next step to help us resource all that's going on already in a new way and take it to the next level and we're excited to see how it's going to mobilize the body further to um, serve the needs of the most broken um just one other little announcement Stephen whispered in my ear to remind me um as you know debbie mentioned our fundraising initiatives there um some of us uh, are committed to the prayer walk on a friday night from six to seven um but over the next few weeks just as we lean into the fundraising we're going to just pray in the new building um and so um if you would like to join in that and um, come along the car park there's um a uh, dubious kind of set of men that usually stand at a wall around about six o'clock and um, they're praying uh, or going to and uh, please do join in men and women and everybody who wants to come along come and pray with us as we just uh, pray on the rest of the provision um i also just really want to emphasize tonight and the new festival Debbie's already said it, but it's just um, my personal bias to say I really, really want to see as many people there as possible. I know a lot of you have signed up for the festival on the Sunday morning. Just love you to consider coming and joining us for the whole weekend. It is going to be wonderful. We've got a big, big swell of people coming on the Sunday, which is really special. But we don't want you to miss out on the Friday and Saturday because it's going to be wonderful as well. We've got a week left in uh, for tickets to be sold. So please do uh, consider that. Okay. With that said, it's it's Pentecost. Um, yay. <laughs> uh, praise the Lord. Um, it's Pentecost Sunday. Um, a momentous day in the life of the church and uh, a momentous day um, that gave birth to the church um, and a history-defining moment um, when the Holy Spirit fell. That's what we celebrate today without it sounding too cheesy. It literally is the church's birthday today. We'll refrain from singing happy birthday to us, but it is the day that the church was born, and um, it's important that we celebrate it, that we allow our bodies, our lives, our faces <laughs> to enjoy our countenance, to be caught up in the joy of what it is to know that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon humanity, and it changed everything. We read about this in Acts chapter 2, which we'll do in a moment, dramatic event, um, as I said, the birth the church were image bearers, those created in the image of God were filled with his own personal presence, ignited and set alight to initiate the greatest movement that has ever happened on the face of the earth. From that point now, going strong still somewhere along the line of two billion people today will celebrate this particular moment. Um, it was a day that was foretold, as we'll see in a moment, by the prophets, and it was a day that Jesus told the disciples to wait for and to get ready for. The opening verses on the screen of Acts chapter 1 tell us this and are a nice little kind of transition from our previous little series from familiar to fascinated, which focused on the 40 days or so that Jesus showed up to his disciples after the resurrection. Let's read. In my former book, Theophilus, that is a great name, 
if we ever get number four for blessed, that's what he's that said to could be. And he, Theophilus. It means lover of God, by the way, okay? And he says this. Luke wrote, this is Luke writing. He talks about Theophilus in the first verse of Luke as well. And now he's writing to him again. Um, his mate, wherever this guy resided. He's writing to him again in Acts chapter 1. And he says this, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. So that's Luke talking about the gospel of Luke. So we've done that bit. We've told you all about Jesus until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented to them and gave many Sorry, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to him, there it is, over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. That's what we've just done, yeah? In the different encounters over the last few Sundays. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. These are really beautiful words. Some of Jesus' last words in his post-resurrected body. And um, he is excited for the disciples at this point. And he's basically saying, I'm going to send you what the Father has promised. And um, I get a sense just as we enter into the scene as Jesus shared this, it says while they were eating, and I can only imagine they were, I don't know, sitting around the table or around the fire or whatever way they were eating. And Jesus, who's appeared to the disciples, is so excited for them. He's like, lads, <laughs> wait, the promise from the Father. It's, it's like if we were to go into kind of child mode and childlike mode and think about the thought of a child when daddy's going to bring it a present back, it's going to be so exciting. Jesus is like, the father has promised something. Now wait for it. Don't leave Jerusalem. Something is going to come. And Jesus was saying, the same spirit that has guided me and led me over the last three years, he wants to come upon you in the same way that he came upon me. So wait for the Holy Spirit. And tarry, linger, because a fresh baptism is coming, a complete immersion in the presence of God and in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is what I've been telling you about. And so the disciples, maybe for the first time in a while, they actually do what they're told. Maybe they didn't know what else to do, but they do that. They wait and they tarry and they linger in a room. And they're not really sure, as I say, probably what else to do. And then, and then it happened. They were sitting in a room like this, and then something happened. A rushing wind came. Let me read the account to you. Let's just honor the word of the Lord and how Luke was inspired to write it. It's on the screens, or you can turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya and the Assyrian, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. It's like our own mother tongues, our own dialects. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun and said, too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, remember Peter, who talked about a week or two? Remember, remember the shame he was feeling? Remember how he'd blown it? Now, now look at this. He stands up. Remember Jesus' words to him, go and strengthen your brothers. He stands up and he declares. Then Peter stood up, I love this line, with the other eleven. This isn't what I'm going to preach about today, but I just can't not go past it. I think it was Billy Graham says something along the lines of when men step forward and women step forward with courage, the spines of others stiffen. Eh? Peter stands up and the other 11 stand with him. And in that moment, they're on it. <laughs> this, is a, this is the church. This is what God had filled him with. And he says, fellow Jews, and he preaches the gospel. And this is like, as um, Tim Mackey says, it's like a proper, <laughs> in one way, it's a proper copy and paste job from the Hebrew Scriptures, right? But he's in the anointing and the flow of the Spirit as he brings all of us together. And he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even all my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And I will show you wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. <laughs> it's such an amazing passage of Scripture. This event, as I've said, that literally changes the world. It's, you can't quantify the effect that this moment has had in history. It's incalculable this movement that was launched in these days. And so what I want to do this morning, because I think the best way to understand the significance of what's going on here is to try and understand how it fits in the unfolding story of God and to try and get a grasp of the layers of meaning that are connected to this particular event and how Luke describes it. There's so much of the story that's gone before mapped onto this moment because this is the fulfillment of something wonderful that has happened. Everything is so deliberate here. 
right? Uh, the gospel writers had a great economy of speech. So there's so much more they could have told us. But everything they tell us is so deliberate because they're trying to help us notice things. And um, nothing's an accident, as we know, with God. So it's important that we pay attention to some of the themes here that are going on. And so the first thing I want us to notice that helps us understand how significant this is, and then we'll apply this to our personal lives as we bring it into land. But the first thing to notice is the timing of this event. This is, this is Pentecost, the Pentecost feast. So you might have heard us reference this before, but if you don't know, don't worry, because um, you will now. There were three feasts in the Jewish calendar. One was called Pentecost, um, which, sorry, one was called Passover, which generally happened around springtime. One was called uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which happened around the autumn time. And then there was one called Pentecost, which happened early summer kind of time, late spring, early summer. And these, these festivals were like uh, entrenched really in the Israelite calendar uh, and in their spiritual religious calendar. It marked and defined who they were as a people. Um, and uh, Passover, as we hopefully know, Passover was the feast that Jesus' death fulfilled. So it was the feast that where Israel remembered that uh, they had had a great deliverance through Moses that led to a great liberation and emancipation from slavery, that God would bring them out of the chains of Israel into a whole new land, a whole new destiny. And Jesus came in line with that story to fulfill the Passover feast. He came as the ultimate sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world, to lead all of humanity, not just Israel, into a whole new exodus, or out of, uh, out of Egypt, metaphorically, into a whole new measure of liberation. And the story had told us that that was going to happen. As the Old Testament unfolded, it starts to picture and prophesy and expect a human deliverer, a son of David, a son of man, a greater king than all the other kings, even greater Moses, one like Moses in the line of Moses. This, the prophets predict this and speak to this, an anointed one, a suffering servant. All these different little threads are tied together that Jesus comes and fulfills. And Jesus was that person. But the thing about Jesus was he just exploded all the expectations of the one who was to come. He, he was unlike beyond what they could have ever imagined. And in a not uh, dissimilar vein, Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, was also prophesied. The Pentecost feast was now about to be fulfilled. Jesus had fulfilled the Passover feast, and now it was the Pentecost feast to be fulfilled. Uh, and in a, as I say, in a similar way to how Jesus as the Messiah fulfilled Passover, the Holy Spirit's outpouring fulfills um, Pentecost. The prophetic expectation was that there was going to be a new age in the future. And that new age would be marked by the presence of God being poured out on the world in a, a new way. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was present. The Holy Spirit's present right at the very beginning of creation. Um, uh, 
which we, we know about Genesis 1, verse 2, I think. And so we read about the Spirit, but throughout the Old Testament, it's as if His presence is kind of sporadic, let me put it like, or periodic. He comes at certain moments. He comes on certain people, usually leaders, to fulfill God-anointed tasks in Israel's history. And so the presence of the Spirit was not unknown. It's talked about quite a lot in the Old Testament. But he hadn't been poured out fully on humanity, which the prophets started to think might happen. But they just didn't know necessarily how. But if you were to do a bit of a research on this, you would find that Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, and Isaiah all speak to this new kind of age that was about to come, of which, which would be marked by a presence of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit being upon humanity. But just like Jesus exploded the imaginations of all the prophetic hopes, so did the coming of the Spirit. The way the Spirit came and the implications of what would happen because of that and the powerful signs that were attracted to that or attached to that were even bigger and more significant than anyone could ever have imagined. That's why it's really important that we get a grasp of it. And so God had timed it. God had timed this work of the Spirit this pouring out of the Spirit, sorry, to happen at Pentecost for a particular reason. Um, Pentecost, pente in the, in the Greek is the word for five uh, and the derivative, uh, you know, where we get 50 from. Pentecost happened 50 days after Passover, right? So God, you know, this is all lined up. This is all beautiful prophetic fulfillment. So it was seven weeks after Pentecost, and seven weeks after Passover, sorry, and then Pentecost. So, go back to my kind of uh, times table. Seven sevens, seven weeks, or 49, yeah? So, after seven weeks, 49 days, and, and then Pentecost. So, so, Pentecost happened 50 days after Passover. Uh, sometimes this feast in the Old Testament was called the Feast of Weeks for that reason, because it was seven weeks, and then Pentecost. And because this feast was a major event in Israel's history, that meant during this feast, this is why the timing is so important, literally hundreds of thousands of people came to Jerusalem for this moment. Hundreds of thousands. The city is swelling with life. And people and Jews, what Luke tells us, representing every nation on earth in Jerusalem at that moment. Why is this important? Because now God wants to reveal what God has always wanted. All people, all flesh, not just Israel, but Israel onto the nations. And so God chooses a moment where as many people that represent as many different nations are on the, in, 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 in the world are in Jerusalem or in the city for this moment where God is going to pour out His Spirit on all people. The feast that he does it at, the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, was a feast that celebrated the harvest. It was like the early harvest. And it was also, it came to also be known as the time when um, uh, the Jews celebrated how God had given through Moses the Ten Commandments. So they reckon it was also like about 50 days since God took Israel out of um Egypt and brought them into the desert. And it was 50 days after that, that when Moses was up Mount Sinai, that God gave them the law. 
And then in giving them the law, he was writing his ways on stone in that particular point to help them live for him. And so this is why the timing is really important because God wants the people of Israel and the disciples to know, first of all, that a whole new type of harvest is about to come, right? They celebrated the harvest, the actual harvest, but now he wants them to know a whole new harvest. Hundreds of thousands of people are in the city. And at this moment, 50 days after Passover, we're celebrating the fact that hundreds of thousands of people are going to hear the good news of God and a whole new harvest is beginning. And also that now, by the presence of the Holy Spirit being poured into humanity, the law is not going to be written on stone anymore. Where is it going to be written? On people's hearts, yeah. It's going to be inscribed in your heart. You're going to walk in His ways. And so this is why, this is why the timing is so, so important. God's desire for all flesh is about to be poured out. But the second thing that's really significant is not just the timing, but really connected to it is the, the symbolism. It tells us, um, uh, uh, we read it earlier, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated them and rested on each of them. So we could say lots of things about this passage, but I just want to draw attention to these physical manifestations that are symbols of what God is doing, particularly wind, fire, and tongues, okay? I've got a picture of wind, and I've got a picture of fire, but you'd be glad to hear I just didn't put a picture of a tongue on the screen because I thought you might be grossed out by that, okay? So I didn't. But we'll get to that in a moment, okay? So first of all, really quickly, let me say wind, right? The wind... Uh, is symbolic because wind right throughout the Bible, in both the Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek, the word for wind is the same word as spirit and the same word as breath, okay? So the same word, this is the same word, it's ruach in the Hebrew and it's pneuma in the Greek where we get our kind of pneumatic word from when it comes to like air and stuff. And so the wind is really symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. God's breath, that we're told, came in Genesis 1, chapter 2, and hovered over the Spirit of God, the Ruach, or the wind of God, hovered over the face of the deep right at the very beginning and created something of beauty. And so right throughout the Scriptures, wind is synonymous with the Spirit of God. And, and so when we hear a violent rushing wind, it's speaking to something. It's reminding us that this is the way the Spirit moves. And then we also read of fire. Tongues as of fire come upon them. Now, fire is a really, really important symbol of God's presence throughout the Bible as well. I learned this this week, so I'm kind of like really excited to tell you this bit, right? This is a good one, right? <laughs> Well, I think it is anyway, in my geeky kind of world of all that kind of stuff. Fire is a symbol of God's presence. One of the most remarkable times that we read about the fire of God, many of you know, was the burning bush, where Moses um, came into contact with a bush that was burning, but interestingly, wasn't burnt up and consumed, but it was on fire. And so he stops and he has this incredible encounter with God. And the Hebrew word here for the burning bush, it's only used twice in Scripture, and twice it refers to the burning bush, and it's the word Sene, that's, that's it in Hebrew, right? And it's only used twice in Scripture in connection with the burning bush. And so Moses is looking at this bush, which is completely on fire, but not consumed. And what he's looking at is what God wants to do with him and what God wants to do with you this morning. Literally burn you up 
with his presence, but not consume you. Literally set a fire in your heart that burns up everything that's not of him, sets you on fire, ignites you with a passion for him, but doesn't destroy you. In fact, shines that light and heats everything around you. Now, Moses then went from the burning bush. God said to him in that encounter, I want you to go and rescue the people from Pharaoh. And when you bring them back, bring them back to this mountain. And that will be assigned to you. He brings them back to that mountain. And God comes and gives them the law like we just described. Now, that uh, mountain dialectically in that was called Mount Horeb, which is why it calls, it's called that in your Bible. But it became known as Mount Sinai, Sinai where that word comes from. And so the bush of fire, the bush that's on fire becomes the mountain that's on fire because God's presence is burning and wants to burn in and amongst his people. And so we come to see this fire of the bush now on the fire on the mountain and a fireworks display basically of epic proportions comes and happens on that mountain as God comes down to say, I want to dwell amongst mankind. And then it's no surprise then that when God builds the tabernacle because he wants to dwell there, he's saying uh, that where his presence is, these are physical manifestations of where heaven is meeting earth. Where, Where there's wind, and where there's fire, and then where there's a kind of glory cloud that comes, where God speaks to his people, these are physical manifestations of where God's presence is. And that continues throughout Scripture. And I haven't time to get into that, but if you go to David and Solomon's temple, if if you go to some of the prophetic visitations, we Ezekiel and Isaiah, we see these, we, we, we see these open visions that these guys have that are connected to the temple the place where God meets, and there's fire, and there's wind, and there's a cloud. So these manifestations, we conclude, are connected to when God wants to show up in power and and reveal what he's always wanted, which is to live amongst mankind. They're not the complete picture. The signs in themselves aren't the complete picture, but they're pointing to something, and they're pointing to the proximity of God's presence, that he is close and that there's a revelation that he wants you to grab in that particular moment. And and this is happening right through. And when this happens, I can't say it any other way than people are freaked out because it's all kicking off. They realize that they are in the presence of something that is and someone that is beyond anything that they could ever imagine which helps us and helps us realize in our 21st century enlightened mindsets that weird, as John Thompson taught some of us recently, is not always wrong. If you want to describe falling down in your face, shaking, being completely overcome, if you want to describe that as weird, that might be the way you would describe that. Sometimes it is wrong. Sometimes it is the flesh. But sometimes weird, if we were to describe that as weird, is not always wrong. Because when you come into the presence of the Almighty God, stuff happens that you can't necessarily compute in our rational brains because God is here. And, and so why it's just really important to get that backdrop is this is all stuff that these young Jewish men sitting in this room and those who were surrounding him, the 120, would have known as wind comes through the room and tongues of fire set up all of their heads. 
God wants them to know something remarkable is happening. And then finally, tongues. Tongues are released. They start to speak in other languages. They're not uh, spiritual languages like some of us understand the gift of tongues to be, but actually other dialects. That the Jews who have come from all of these other surrounding areas come to hear, come for Pentecost to hear the works of God. Let me just list them again. Why does Luke list all these? Parthians, Medes, Elamites. Elamites, like this is, Elamites is modern day Iran. At Nua, in a few weeks' time, David Yesnagar is going to be here. He was here a few months ago, and he is witnessing his ministries called Elam Ministries because here at Pentecost, people that live in modern-day Iran were filled with the hard the works of God. And David will share on Saturday night in Nua about what God is doing. The fastest-growing church in the world right now is in Iran. All over, there's a movement of the Spirit of God going all over Iran, and it's connected to this story. Elamites, people from modern-day Iran, they heard back then the wonderful works of God. And the story is continuing to unfold today. Resonance of Mesopotamia, and it goes on. Arabs, Cretans, people from Crete, like it's, they're all there. But what do these tongues symbolize? Well, when else did other people speak in tongues? So your mind, if, if you know the wee bit of the Old Testament, your mind will hopefully go back to like Babel. And back in Babel, where people built a, a, a tower onto themselves and tried to build a city onto themselves as well as to rival God, God had to do what? He had to come down and separate them and conf bring confusion amongst their languages because he knew that if he didn't, they would actually ruin the whole story. And so Babel was an act of self-exaltation and human arrogance against God. And so God has to bring confusion of language. But now this is the complete reversal. A people who are now submitted to the Lordship of Jesus are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And still while they're celebrating the diversity of all the nations, He's uniting them in languages that declare the one God, the one Jesus, the one thing that the Lord is doing today and wants to continue to do in the world. And so when we pick up this story at this point, we're realizing that what's happening in Jerusalem as a fire comes, like tongues of fire upon them, and as a wind comes through the building, and as tongues are released to declare the goodness of God, the Spirit is actually revealing Scripture. The Spirit is, is like the Bible teacher. <laughs> he's actually taking all of Scripture, and he's, he's showing us more of what the Scriptures have always been trying to tell us, and, and, and the Spirit is, is bringing the disciples, as they think, well, they probably didn't have time to think, as they try to understand all that's going on, he said, now what is happening in the world, a new temple is being established. A new temple is being established on the earth. And that is why the fire is not over a physical building. That is why the fire in the upper room did not rest over the upper room like it did in the tabernacle. Where did the fire rest? Above the heads of people like you and me. That's why the wind came through the room, not out there, but in here. And it blew through the room. And the followers of Jesus have now become the meeting place of heaven and earth, of, uh, on the earth. <laughs> they have become the living temples, the living tabernacles. And Peter gets up and declares all of this. He declares that this has all been prophesied from before. 
And the rest of the book of Acts will go on to tell us how this new temple is being established in kingdom families throughout the known world. Luke listed all those countries because he's basically mapping most of the ancient world to say that now is the time. Now is the moment where longing love of God and divine desire is now being unfolded and unfurled and seen for everyone that God wants all flesh. And he wants to fill us with his spirit. And Jerusalem becomes ground zero for this movement that will move throughout the world. Peter preaches that day, 3,000 come to the Lord. The movement is up and running. But to initiate that movement, as we try to bring this round to a really personal application and response this morning, to initiate this movement, it took a fresh baptism in the Holy Spirit. It took an immersion. It took a yieldedness to God for the Spirit to come and fill and flood his people. And they received his presence like a purifying fire and like an empowering wind. Remember, these were only signs of God's glory, but they were given to reveal his goodness. And so Jesus was the fullness of God's glory. And because the disciples have this stuff going, so the tongues of fire, the wind, we are the new temple. The thing about it was they just spent three years with Jesus. So if you can imagine what's, what's happening here, they, they know that where there's fire and wind, there's a temple. There's a place where God and where, where heaven and earth meet. And so, so they know that they point to God's glory. But God's glory is always given to point to God's goodness. And if you can do the little link here, this is really important. If you can do the little link here, they have just spent three years with Jesus. So what is the fullness of God's glory? Where is the fullness of God's glory revealed? It's revealed in Jesus. And so they have seen what the goodness of God looks like in a human being. It looks like self-emptying, sacrificial love. The glory of God is most revealed when Jesus, God the Son, hangs on the cross and we see a God who would rather forgive his enemies than get revenge in them. We see a God who wants to save our, us from our sins, liberate us from our own slavery and bring us into the fullness of his love. And so the disciples embody this in their actual words which they preach and in their actions and they go forth as these new temples with the presence of God, the Holy Spirit now riding on their hearts, changing them from the inside out to bring them into the goodness of glory of God. And as we celebrate this event today, this is what we are reminded of. We're reminded that we get to be filled because of Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit to be empowered to make him known in our words and in our actions. This is for us. Now look at Peter's last words, which I didn't read. If you were to read on the rest of Acts chapter 2, he continues preaching. And then the people are cut to the heart, the, the Bible tells us. And they say, what does this mean? What should happen now? We thought these guys were on the wine. <laughs> but this is actually, this, this is more than that. And Peter preaches and declares that. And he says this, Peter replied to them and they asked, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. This promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off, 
I feel like the Lord this morning, I, I, I know I've tried to do a bit more of a teach to help you understand what's going on in Pentecost. We've done all of this. I've done all of that to, to try and bring it to this point. This promise is for you. This promise is for you. And here's not, it's for your children. It's for your children. And it's for all those who are for, it's for those people that you work beside who are far from God. It's, it's, for, it's for people in our community who, who are broken and hurting and don't really understand and know how they can be filled and made whole and healed. This promise, this promise that has been unfolding throughout the whole story, it's for you this morning. His fiery presence, his rushing wind is for you. It's for us collectively. We're about in a few weeks to move into a new building, as you know, um, which is wonderful. Um, we can't wait. God has provided it for us. And it, when you walk into it, it, you know, we've been remarking how much it does feel like home. There's something special about it. We want to set it apart for him. And when we set places apart, I think God honors that and God fills it. But here's the thing that we have to be careful about. It's really hard to build a theology from the New Testament for how special a building can be. When we uh, first uh, renovated our building in Lurgan, young people were in on a Friday night, and um, some people started to get a little bit annoyed because one or two of the uh, roof tiles got smashed because a sponge ball hit it and cracked it. And what they used to say, some people used to say was, I mean, like it was in the sanctuary. And I used to think, well, let's have a chat about respect generally, because that's good discipleship. But let's not, you know, put the word sanctuary on things that actually aren't really that New Testament. Because this promise is for you. You're the temple. You're the sanctuary. If you're in Jesus, the Bible says you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You are the temple of God. And so it's so important for us, I believe, this word this morning, as we prepare to go into a new building, that we honor the building and we honor everything God has done. And we respect the building because that's what it is. That's what godliness looks like. But that we don't allow ourselves to get trapped in some kind of thinking that somehow it becomes more important than you and me and the community out here because we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And this is the core fundamental truth of the New Testament that Jesus brings for us. You are the, you, you are the sine. You are that burning bush. The fire of God wants to come upon us in new ways. And it all starts with an immersion in the Holy Spirit. Now, as I finish this morning, I'm obviously not going to get into a theology of the baptism of the Holy Spirit this morning, except to say that when you come to Jesus, I believe that the Spirit comes and resides in you and lives in you. That's the gospel truth. Seals his presence in your life, makes his home in you. And I believe at that point for many people, they come into an immersion of the Spirit. But my experience tells me that many people don't. But while the Spirit is there, an understanding of the fullness of the Spirit in people's lives 
is something that comes for many of them afterwards they live into. They have to come to a greater appreciation and understanding. They have to yield more to receive the Holy Spirit. And this morning, we, as we close, we want to we leave space for you to come forward and be prayed for and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What would stop you from doing that? Fear? And here's one here for us, I think, this morning. Ungodly control. Ungodly control. Which is, I just need to be in control of my life. Sometimes weird is weird. Sometimes weird is not always wrong. And when the overwhelming power of God, like even think about logically for a moment. If God is all-powerful, the one who spoke in creation came out of his mouth, and his presence comes upon you, it makes sense that you might not be able in your body to control his power, doesn't it? And if his overwhelming love comes upon you, I mean, the love that we can't even quantify, the heights and depths, it, it makes complete sense that emotionally you might not be able to kind of completely contain that. Does that mean that every time God comes, those things happen? No, it doesn't. But does it, does it sometimes? Well, it's right through the scriptures. It does. And this morning, I want to pray. I want to pray, not just for this morning, but I, I believe as we worship tonight in Northfield and as we go into a number of weeks here of just persisting ourselves as we come to the new festival, I personally sense that the Holy Spirit wants to do something in our lives, wants to pour himself out afresh, wants to, wants to let us experience more of the first fruits for some of us of what his power and presence looks like in our lives. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come and to lead us in a song. And as we do that, um, I'm going to pray in a moment. And then we're going to create some space. We'll let those who need to go and get kids do that. But we'd love you to respond this morning to what the Lord wants to do and what the Lord wants to say. So just why don't we just close our eyes for a moment so the worship team get ready and just reflect on what the Holy Spirit's doing and saying.